0: Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. The Reinventing Solidarity podcast features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. With this new episode of Reinventing Solidarity, we welcome Micah Utrecht as the new editor-at-large of New Labor Forum. In this capacity, he'll be taking over from me as host of this podcast. Beyond his mellifluous voice, I think you'll appreciate his thoughtful take on the contemporary challenges and opportunities confronting workers and working class movements for economic and social justice. A freelance writer and author of two books, Micah comes to the journal with editorial experience at Jacobin Magazine and In These Times, as well as podcast hosting at The Dig and The Vast Majority. And before working in journalism, he was a labor organizer. In this, his first episode with Reinventing Solidarity, he talks with historian Nelson Lichtenstein about Lichtenstein's forthcoming article for New Labor Forum, assessing the historical significance of the United Auto Workers 2023 stand up strike.
1: Nelson Lichtenstein, thank you for coming to the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Delighted to be here. Yeah. Let's just start at the top line level. Where do you put this most recent UAW strike in the sweep of UAW history and American labor history yeah. generally? I mean, yeah. obviously, we're only a few months out from this strike, so it might be yeah. premature to. Uh, right, its exact place in the history books but at, at this vantage point how do you see yeah. the impact of this yeah. where do you put it in the sweep of american labor history
2: yeah i would say th- three things three things one is there is a relationship between um, having a more democratic selection of officers, and that's what we had. A new team came in, a new crew. They'd been critical for quite a while of the of various concessionary contracts that the UAW had put forward, and and you know a new team, a, a new crew new energy and and they demonstrated that. That was for sure. that was one thing. So that's one. and you know and we' brought in new people and okay, so that's yeah that happens that's happened in American labor history and history, you know in, in general in the past, but you know when you have a uh, an insurgent group that comes in then the new energy is released and new enthusiasm. Okay that's one. Secondly previous to this, we had pattern bargaining in the last 40 years, the pattern was that the uh, the new non-union transplants were sort of setting a ceiling for UAW could demand in Detroit and you know the UAW was cautious to, you know, at some point the, uh, the there'd be that the the transplant people would just uh, the would just say well we're just we'll just lower our wages to hell with it and and we'll put even more into the, what the big 3 uh, their share in this case the, the pattern reversed Uh, And we went back to a situation before the 1970s in which the UAW set the pattern. Um, and then other companies followed, and that's I think that is a, is a real tribute to what's what happened. The the UAW said in way you know very good wage increase at least twenty five percent for regular workers, and and what's and even and much much more for temporary and and uh, uh, contingent workers, etc. So and then the then the other companies at least have made an effort to match that. So that's that's a very significant thing, sort of the end of the era. Of concessionary bargaining that began in 1981, and then third, we have even a broad, even more more broader, which is that the 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 UAW, and this is here is why I, I reference things like the Ruther led strikes after World War II. The UAW was in relationship; uh, it's not exactly a parallel, not following, but they they had a relationship to larger national issues of political economy and in this case it was that there was the there were a trillion dollars or, or some large amount of money that the government was putting forward for the green transition and both Fain and Biden agreed that if the if the wages were lousy uh in the uh in the new uh battery plants and other plants then this was going to be a, a a huge negative both for the both for the green transition and and a positive for Donald Trump and the Republicans who were against all that. So there's a linkage to that. And then in post-World War II, America, the the UAW famous strike against General Motors was uh uh you know for for uh, purchasing power, Uh, wage increases without price increases. It was the the whole issue of post-war inflation was the the huge issue in front of the country. How do we avoid that? How do we stop it? Uh, How do we increase uh, the real incomes of American workers after layoffs after World War II? And, And there, Ruther was putting his own program out, but it was in, in tandem with sort of the left wing of the New Deal at that time, people like Henry Wallace and others. So um, so anyway, so those three things, I think, make this a, a very significant historic strike, and uh, one which, uh, you know, we can't tell at this stage uh, the, the dimensions of that, but certainly the potential was enormous.
1: Since basically the dawn of the UAW, its earliest days, it's really amazing how you can see so many trends in labor and American economics and politics sort of flowing through what the union is doing from the earliest days of the union, obviously, uh, their early CIO years, the sit-down strike, the sort of spirit of militancy and creativity that is coursing through the early days of this union that go on to sort of infuse this larger CIO moment to the Treaty of Detroit in 1950 at this establishment of a kind of golden era for uh, the least part of the American proletariat, but, but also that kind of defangs the union in some key ways, um, all the way through, you know, deindustrialization uh, through, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, the, the team concept, uh, to, you know, 2008 in the financial crisis where workers give away huge amounts of their past gains in order to prop the companies up, the big automakers up through bankruptcy, uh, to today, uh, to many of the debates about uh, a green transition, uh, to debates about uh, Joe Biden's economic plan and the Inflation Reduction Act. All of this, you know, the, there's, the, the UAW is a sort of uh, a, an opportunity to read what is going on in larger Politics and economics in, in the US, through whatever the UAW is doing at any given time in American labor history.
2: Uh, Walter Ruther, when he was elected president and really took control of the union, well, he was elected in 46, became completely in con- con- control in 47. He made a speech in which he said, the UAW is the vanguard of America, and of course, there he was thinking in progressive and, and radical terms. But it was the vanguard going up for the working class, and also the vanguard coming down. I mean, that was the whole, uh, all of the, some of those issues, problems that you just enunciated were. Where uh, the UAW led the way, uh, many other unions had problems as well. But the union and the industry have had a outsized impact. I mean, in the in the, for most of the 20th century, the auto industry was, as Peter Drucker said, the industry of industries. I mean today we could say, you know, Silicon Valley or finance or something, but nevertheless, there are more than a million auto workers in the country. They are not a minority are organized and it's still at the very center of the American economy. And you know, it, it and auto auto is in part because it's both increasingly a combination of various new technologies and, you know, classic industrial work. So but yes, it has. I think that's true. And and even though the UAW today is a is a union with with less than or about 400,000 workers much smaller than say the teachers unions or the or even the, the food and commercial worker but nevertheless it is resuming that position as a kind of setting a pace for good now but but unfortunately recently for for bad as well so you're right about that
1: yeah your piece goes into the recent history of the union the corruption that really characterized union leadership for so many yeah. years and recently uh, as well as yeah. the reform efforts yeah. that led to yeah. this current strike. So can you just remind listeners first of that kind of corruption, as well as the just sort of uh, the, the the state of democracy within the UAW up until recent times?
2: Yeah, the corruption had two aspects to it. The garden variety corruption, which you can find in any institution anywhere, and uh, you know, is basically you know people taking money and cutbacks and, and getting cigars and trips and illicit things of that sort, and that that happened, and that's that was the issue upon which two presidents of the UAW went to jail, or they got money from the Chrysler Corporation, and uh, and anyway, and then took money from the membership. So that was one kind of corruption. You can find that everywhere. But the the more profound and important corruption went over for, for many decades, and it was the corruption that crept in and was endemic to the, the idea of a kind of a union management cooperation, jointness, uh, whatever you want to call it, an ideology that the union and the companies uh, developed in the period from the 80s, well, the late 70s and 80s on. And this really sort of stripped the union of its of its raison d'etre, that is, uh, as a representative of the working class. And there were institutions created like training centers, which ostensibly are a good idea, or joint, you know, meetings, you know, uh, maybe at some conference or something, but they all became kind of uh, corrupt and, and slush funds and and really a breeding ground for all sorts of, collab. just collaboration, and then that easily went over into corruption. And that was something that was very endemic. And again, it, you didn't get put in jail for this, but it had the effect of stripping the union of its sense of purpose and leading to all sorts of corruptions, big and small. And that's something that that Sean Fain, he he ran against, you know, no tears, no concessions, no corruption. And the corruption he ran against was not just people getting free cigars from Chrysler, but this corruption that was involved in a collaboration that went on for 40 years. And that that, that collaboration, of course, had many uh, ideological and academic and governmental advocates. I think it's being discredited today, but nevertheless, it was there
1: role of the organization labor notes in the uaw that came to power really not that long before the strike began Um, i wonder if you could reflect on the role of labor notes (laughs) in these kind of efforts labor notes of course is an organization that has been dedicated to union reform and democratization of unions in particular like the UAW unions that were particularly undemocratic and at times corrupt over the years. And they have staffers who are now in the new Fain administration who come from labor notes. Fain is part of caucus Unite All Workers for Democracy that really has its roots in the kind of like labor notes universe. So could you talk a little bit about the the role of that uh, organization in bringing us to this moment where this strike could take place and be its transformation? Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, labor notes, I mean, it's a remarkable, it's, it's actually in the scope of, of American labor history to have a oppositional publication and movement for more than 40 years is extraordinarily uh, I think it's unprecedented, really. Uh, anyway, labor notes came out. The people found that labor notes came out of the of the new left, but more specifically came out of the international socialists who were a sort of unorthodox Trotskyist formation, uh, which, you know, were very active at Berkeley and, and New York and places like that in the in the in the 60s and the early 70s. They industrialized. That was a, something that many in the new left did. And the Communist Party had done that in 1948, or in the, in the 30s and 40s, in the 48 in particular, and the new left did that more generally. And so, you know, the the idea is let's go to the steel and auto and trucking and uh, places like that. And, you know, if not create the revolution, at least, you know, create a, a militant dynamic trade union movement. And, you know, the 70s came along and a recession, and it, it put the kibosh on, a, on some of those more venturesome dreams. So they founded, the, fir- the original name of, of one of their publications was Worker's Power. <laughs> And uh, and then they changed the to labor notes, uh, sort of. But nevertheless, the the slogan of labor notes beginning in 1979 was "Let's put the movement back in the labor movement." And I, and I I I I've been proud. I'm proud to say i have been a supporter of labor notes, just a financial and sometimes a writing supporter for all my life. And I think it's a, a vital institution. So what it first did, very importantly, they campaigned against and wrote books and pamphlets, and and did more than just put out a magazine. They also held conferences and workshops and, you know, really that that kind of organizing, uh, first against the concession bargaining that began in the early 80s, and wrote Jane Slaughter and Mike Parker wrote a famous book, Concessions and How to Fight Them. And then I think equally, and maybe even more important, they were opponents of this collaborationist, this this jointness, this this labor management cooperation, which everyone from Robert Reich to uh, the head of, of Ford were was in favor of it, but they said no. This is a b- big mistake, and uh, they campaigned against that. And I think they ult- they won. Ultimately, I think ultimately they won. So labor notes was there. Now they were they were not directly the organizers of opposition groups in the UAW, but, but there have been opposition groups going way going all the way back. There is something about the culture of the auto workers which has which every so often generates oppositional movements. And anyway, in, the, in from the eighties on, there was there have been new directions. Uh, was one of them. The most recent was United All Workers for Democracy. But there's been a kind of through line there of these opposition groups, both, you know, seeking to both democratize the union and to make it a more militant organization. And Labor Notes has been there as a, you know, reporting on these movements, uh, encouraging them, doing investigative work, various kinds of contract and things of that sort. Uh, they're sort of parallel in a way to Teamsters for a Democratic Union, and uh, it's it's remarkable that it's existed all of these years. I mean, uh, you can go back to the oppositions in the in the mine workers in the 1920s and 30s, okay, or, or you can go back to the, the radicals in the late 19th century. They don't last 45 years, and Labor Notes has so it's it's a remarkable institution. And yes, people from labor notes some of them have been picked up by the the fane administration and and others are just you know people who uh, sort of read labor notes and agreed with it and you know they just got themselves elected uh, you know to I think I'd like to, the executive board I think Brandon Marcella who's now region 9a I, I I don't think he was ever employed by labor notes but I'm sure he read it and uh, and he's now on the executive board so i guess in a broader sense i think there is much to be said for independent oppositional movements in every Every union and every institution, for that matter, doesn't have to be a union. And you know, and and most of the time they lose. Most of the time they lose, but they're there when you know the the crisis emerges, and they can and they can take advantage of it. And I think that uh, that that says a lot for um, for the, those people, radicals of that sort, unionists of that sort. And I, I think you know it, it, it should be a, a historical encouragement to them.
1: So the kind of corruption like a, that we were uh, talking about just now
2: helped lead to
1: a moment where there was a democratic opening in union, the introduction of one member, one vote, and, and members directly. Right, right. The,
2: the thing that really happened was in the in the late, what, the teens, I guess, 2017 or something, 18, that the attorneys in Detroit, <laughs> there was this corruption. There were payoffs and, and kickbacks and et cetera. And there was a uh, trial, or I'm not sure exactly the mechanism, but about 11 or 12 members of the UAW officials and, and the president went to jail. Now, one of the things that United All Workers for Democracy, which existed at that time, said to the district attorney, said, Look, we don't want you to just put people in jail or or even just establish a monitor over the union. That's that was done with the Teamsters back in the 50s and 60s. What we want is to have, you know, open democratic elections, one person, one vote. And as a way of of ensuring that this sort of what, what had happened was that the leadership of the UAW were organized into something called the administration caucus that actually had actually been founded by Walter Ruther back in the 40s, it was then called the Ruther Caucus. Anyway, and they were really a self-selected group. All the presidents of the UAW came out of the sort of a vote of like, you know, five to four or, or six to seven on the executive board. You know, they chose them. And so it, it was really insular. And then they projected their power downward into the locals, you know, rewarding friends and punishing their enemies. And so the United All Workers for Democracy, which was really not a, Super powerful group, it, it had members around, but it wasn't it wasn't more than really a ginger group it said, look, let's have a uh, first a referendum on whether or not the workers want to elect their officers by one person, one vote, and then we'll have the if that wins, then we'll have that election. And they did that. And as a result, remarkably, the insurgent slate, you know, at which Fain was was one of them, they eventually won a majority of the UAW executive board and the presidency of Fain. The old leaders of the UAW wanted to ignore this whole thing. And so they downplayed it, which was a mistake on their part, uh, which allowed the insurgents to to win some offices. And then Fane, in the end, won by just 500 votes. It wasn't, wasn't like a landslide, but he took that mandate, small as it might be, and made it a much bigger mandate. And I think to, to that today, Fain is quite popular, even among people who were his opponents uh, in an earlier way. Let me make one point here. I do not think, ultimately... One person, one vote, referendum style elections of of higher officers is necessarily a more democratic or more, how should I put it, thoughtful way of electing officers. In the UAW, during the 1930s and 40s, when there were delegated conventions, I mean, these were absolute cockpits of, of political contestation and debate and sort of self-education, you know, and they were covered by the New York Times on the front page, what was happening at the UAW convention. I mean, you know, if you if you can have really genuinely elected delegates and you and, the, and from the locals and then they go and debate and everyone from Edmund Burke on the one side to Lenin on the other thought that, that this was the best democratic way to do it. You have delegates who are empowered to vote their constituents, but also to, you know, be creative at the convention itself. Now, anyway, that over time, it, those delegated conventions became uh, sort of a, a, a structures that that the leadership controlled. So, it, it you know, it was a good thing to have this uh, the, the way they're doing it now but i'm just saying that there are have been times in the past when delegated conventions can be quite democratic Payne won the election by a very small margin
1: as you mentioned and yeah. he won office in march 2023 only six months yeah. before this major strike yeah. takes place i remember reading reporting at the time of his victory in jacobin our labor reporter alex press was at the bargaining uh, yeah. convention in Detroit. And yeah. she did not sense any sense of unanimity among the UAW leaders and rank yeah. and file for what the Fain agenda was going to be. You know, he, had, he had just barely pulled out this election, uh, and now they were yeah. turning to a, a massive strike. Before the Fain administration was even really able to consolidate its power within the union, were you surprised that the new reformers were able to pull this off in such a short amount of time after taking
2: office? Not entirely, because I thought there was a thirst for it, and there was residual militancy in the UAW, which was always there. Jane Slaughter made the point in an article in Labor Notes that even when the leadership was terrible kind of well you know just corrupted not and not in communication had done no mobilization so for example in the 2019 General Motors strike where 40,000 GM workers were on strike for for 40 days you know the the membership was absolutely there they were they were on strike there was no sense of you know we we don't want to do it or or, you know there there was like we want to do it there was always this residual militancy so I think all you had to do was to tap into that and I mean, I, not that I, I mean, that was there. And, and Fain did that very skillfully over the summer. And I think in the process, was able to create out of some of his opponents a kind of support. And then I then I noticed that in, when the strike did take place, he was very careful to give credit to those people in the union who'd been against him, who might have been like, like um, I think it's Chuck Browning. Who was head of the Ford Department? Who was one of his main opponents? But Browning, uh, dude, who has great credit at that convention in March, said, "Okay, we're all going to get behind Faye now." And then they, they more or less did. There, there has been some uh, quibbling and stuff. And I think in the recent um, settlement of the strike, the old, some of the older workers uh, were uh, who are going to retire soon were not happy about what they wanted in terms of pensions, which wasn't much. So there's there is still that opposition. But I I thought that, that there a residual. Potential militancy was was there among auto workers, and you just needed someone to tap into it. And Fain certainly did. I wonder what you thought about the
1: union's approach to the strike. This stand up strike model uh, that obviously harkens back to the days of the sit down <laughs> strike uh, had this model that was kind of rolling strike. They did strike all big three automakers at yeah. once, but not all workers right. were walking off the job at any given moment um so what do you make of that yeah technical tactical innovation as well as the union's messaging this sort of like broad populist messaging you know sean fain wearing the shirt yeah. that says eat the rich during yeah. the strike and this is this, this messaging about american inequality and making the strike a referendum on the state of the american economy what, what do you make of all of that
2: yeah I mean it was tactically innovative. I don't think that was the absolute key i think the the latter thing you mentioned the the message and the was more important I'll get to that in a second uh, It was tactically innovative because one of the problems with traditional way to do it, which was the so called you'd strike one company Ford or something, and then you'd reach a, a agreement there and then that would be a pattern which you would then take to the other companies. The problem with that was it meant that the workers in the companies that were being struck were just sort of passively there. They were just passively waiting around and you didn't mobilize them. And meanwhile, it, it was uh, financially burdensome for those in the struck company. In the way that Fane did it, they didn't, of course. They, they they didn't shut down all three uh, companies entirely. In fact, only about a third of the workers went out, even by the end of the strike. But it meant that all the workers in the union were had the expectation that they may strike, <laughs> and I think that was very energizing. Uh, and so there were practice picket lines and and you know and rallies and things of that sort. And then, of course, I mean, ta- from a tactical point of view. Fain did do a kind of whipsaw strategy against the companies. That is, you know, okay, if you come forward with a lousy offer this week, we'll strike, you know, one of your uh, strike another one of your big plans, which they did, and then they then and so and, they, and it was very humorous at some points. Like half an hour before Fain was to announce that. The uh, the plant that we shut down the the like I think at one point Chrysler came across with a with a much better offer and then they, and so so Fain and the executive board did not shut down that that plant uh, so things like that did happen but tactics never actually win They're, they can be important but but more important I think was the the mobilization both rhetorically and politically and organizationally that Fain and his team put forward and he he knew I mean he, he, look around you that, you know, we're in a moment of mobilization of lots and lots of workers around the country. There is a kind of, you know, eat the rich sort of sentiment out there. It isn't a polite thing to say, but, you know, Thayne said, yeah, that's, that's what people are thinking. Let's do it. Maybe, maybe Trump here, Trump's kind of, uh, you know, Id, sort of, let's just, just say what, what you mean, you know. And, and, uh, maybe that has a kind of, uh, you know, had effect you know, that's the billionaire class are worthless and just say it, you know, don't don't be. Anyway, so um, Fane picked up on that. And I do think that, well, he, but let me say this, that his rhetoric was brilliant. And maybe it was partly influenced by the people he hired at, from labor notes who'd been writing about how to be militant for many for a long time. Uh, I think Fain, I think it had uh, himself uh, yeah, an element of the social gospel, which I think is has always been important in American unionism, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. and or there's a Jewish form of that as well, a kind of kind of biblical, you know just I mean, the, the 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 title of the Old International Ladies Garment Workers Union was called Justice, you know, which had not had an Old Testament flavor to it. Anyway, uh, Fane was very good at that. And then, of course, as I say, the strike was in tandem with the government's funding of the battery plants and he made clear that this this strike is about the green transition and whether you know we're going to get a fair shake and and i think that and the demand one of the striking things they did win was was the demand that at least these battery plants would come under the master contract at least ultimately it was a little more complicated than that but i think ultimately they will and that's very important so i think both on a tactical basis and ideological basis and then a kind of political basis, Fane hit all, you know home runs on all of them. Quite remarkable. I mean,
1: it's probably true that the people who were around him, the kind of reform-minded labor notes types, played yeah. uh, an important role in shaping what his messaging looked like. But also, it was very clear that some of this was pure Fane himself, right? Some of the kind of like Martin Luther King-style Rhetoric—the kind of Old yeah. Testament uh, thundering yeah. that you're that you're referring to—that uh, that, that right. seems to be very central to who Fane is as a person. When he was talking at one point in the strike about quoting the uh, the line from uh, one of the Gospels about uh, the difficulty: it is as difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven as it is yeah. for a camel right. to enter the eye of the needle. And then he's right. talking about how you know that what what hell means is yes. pe- workers having to live. Paycheck to paycheck, yeah. not being able to see their families, right. not being able to afford the right. necessities, while, while a small number of people yeah. hoard all of the wealth. I mean, that that seemed to be coming directly from the uh, the heart of this sort of like right. uh, Midwestern Protestant. Right. Uh, the guy. Right. Th- this this was Fain himself. This was uh, what he truly believed. He truly was disturbed at, at a deep emotional core uh, about yeah. the state of the American economy. And he, he portrayed those things in a way that could resonate with lots of people who are also angry about that level
2: of rising inequality. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I, yes, and I think, that, I think that's very important. And, you know, he is from Kokomo, Indiana. I mean, you know, uh, and uh, absolutely, I think that that was very important, very genuine, and he, and he knew, he knew some of his gospel. And I think that's, that's very important. Now, whether or not that counters the, or has an impact we can talk about that of the evangelical christianity which has moved so far to the right is another another story but i think it, it is it's very genuine and he all, i again i i'm not privy to the internal you know who was writing what speech but fane i think picked up uh, he picked up the ethos of, of of so many american workers and he ran with it and that's important to do that you know that and and a lot of and sometimes union leaders get stuck in there their ways, and they don't quite see what's happening. And that's why a new a new leadership, you know, they're, they're more in touch with what's going on. In fact, to to win the leadership, they have they have to be in touch. They have to, you know, uh, what they say has to resonate with the majority. And so I think Fain did that brilliantly.
1: Remind us what was in the final negotiated contract. It seemed to be that across yeah. the board, despite some of the issues that you mentioned, that some workers obviously were not happy with every aspect yeah. of, the, of what was negotiated in the final contract, yeah. uh, but uh, but across the board, people seem to overall see this as
2: a, a huge yeah. victory for the UAW. So, remind us what the details of yeah. that victory are. Well, they they went uh, straight out twenty five percent wage increase for a contract ending on I think May one or um, two thousand twenty eight, um, which is good. Which is good? It's not. It, it's it's good. But on top of that, they got cola cost of living adjustment, which had you know, been around for many decades and then was was ended in, in the various recessions of the I think in the first in the eighties it was ended and then again it was ended in two thousand eight. And with cola, since we've had an inflationary we still have inflation, probably the general wage increase is will be at thirty three to thirty five percent by the time the contract's over, maybe maybe even more. But beyond that, and here I think is the a political decision they made which was the, the, one of the strategies of the companies and of the and of the companies they want to organize has been to create two tiers to have temporary workers, contingent workers, for example, the people at all the distribution centers where the parts distribution centers, which they struck very early they're on a terrible contract which is much lower than, than that of the of, uh, auto workers and, you know in the big three plants. So they said we're gonna push to have, Really dramatic wage increases for all of those workers, and if we then are not going to push for better pensions for our, um, you know, veteran, uh, long time workers, well, you know, in, in terms of organizing and in terms of really who needs it and, and and create making the union look like it can do something spectacular, let's give this money to the to the younger people, the ones who are on these second tiers, the ones who are who are contingent, who are temporary workers, and they did that, and some people. Uh, some of those people who were like earning seventeen dollars an hour are going to end up, you know, doubling their wages in months, not years. Uh, not everyone, but it's just really spectacular. And you can then take that to the non-union plants and say, "Hey, look what we did." So now, so as again, the 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 ratification vote, which again, I think it I think it had to do with the new regime. There wasn't like uh, you know they weren't as in the past, sort of you know. Uh, coming down to the locals and saying, you must vote this way or that, you know, et cetera. I think it was a pretty open, fair vote. The ratification vote was, was only about... I don't know, sixty percent for and forty percent against, some of these plans. I think, at, I think at Ford was it maybe fifty-five percent versus Ford. Anyway, it was fairly close, and this partly reflected a, I think, a sense of you know democratic empowerment, but also some of the older workers, the veteran, where they wanted a better pension. The, the pensions had been cut back after two thousand eight. They wanted to restore that, and Fanes made that clear in recent speeches that, that they're going to they're going to you know uh, they're going to fight for that in in the future. But you know, that's what unionists do have to you know decide what they're going to go for and what they aren't oh the other aspect of the of the strike of course as as i mentioned this earlier was at least for the big three that the battery plants, which will be built and which are being built with government subsidies will be under the master contracts at ford ford agreed to have a um A genuine sort of neutrality so that that the the workers can vote. And it looks very likely they will vote to be in the union and and then they'll be part of the master contract. I mean, many of these battery plants haven't been built yet, of course. So so, but anyway, so that's what Fain won now I mean, as I say this, the strategy of the companies had been i should have said this earlier had been to have the battery plants kind of a you know a second tier workforce, you know lower wages et cetera and, and one of the big things with it, both Biden and Ford wanted to bring those wages up, so you can say, yes, the green transition is a good thing for workers. it's not going to be a, a problem, which is what Trump is saying. What do you think of
1: the kind of uh pace setting that Fane's rhetoric and the union's organizing agenda basically around a green transition will have will will that have a big impact on other unions and other labor leaders approach to these things. I mean obviously there's been a lot of fear on the part of many union workers and union leaders that for what a green transition or a green new deal or any kind yeah. of change you know major yeah. upheaval in whatever their industry is will look like for their workers? Will it result in workers getting laid off? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, there's a lot of fear around yeah. what that yeah. looks like. So do, do you think that this will p- play any kind of role in getting other union leaders around
2: the country to get on board with the idea of a green transition? I think it, on the one hand it'll encourage them to, but two kinds of bans. One of the Biden administration is, hey, we want your support if we're going to do this. We want this boy very direct, you know, in a way of we actually mention. Of course, Biden did show up on the picket line, which was the first time in, in U.S. history that a sitting president ever had set, shown up on a picket line. It was very symbolic, but it was very important. Uh, so that, they'll demand on the bat of the government. And then I, I think that they will say, look, it, again, as you said earlier, the UAW sets the pattern in many ways for American- Kind of social policy, really more than just unionism, and uh, you know uh, whether it's let's say uh, the uh, IBEW or other uh, you know unions involved in this kind of uh, green. Uh, um, move to, a, to electrification you know they'll say hey look we, we we insist that the standards be the same as they were in the older um in, in a previous industry doing it I th- yeah i think unquestionably it will the specifics are different i think it's going to make make it more difficult for these transplant companies to have uh, the battery plants again as a, as a kind of low-wage um, you know feeder plan and that was their original plan i think that'll be more difficult now and i believe and, and then there's also this question of china biden is it's kind of tricky he is sort of Making it more difficult for China to supply these batteries, they may try to end up doing it through Mexico. So it's a, it gets a little tricky. But I think what it means is that unionism, collective bargaining, as it was at various moments uh, of importance in the past, whether it was 1919 or 1946, it's not just between a certain group of workers and a a, a certain group of companies. It involves the political economy of the entire country. And that's what's on the agenda right now, which makes this somewhat an exciting moment. So on the
1: transplant issue, it's been kind of amazing to see what has happened after the strike was ended, that the union immediately shifted its energies into organizing transplants as we record this. Uh, just within the last 24 hours, the union has announced that they signed a, a majority of uh, Volkswagen Chattanooga employees up for the union. They, the majority of Volkswagen employees there have signed union cards. They're really on the warpath to organize the yeah, non-union yeah, yeah. auto companies, and yeah. uh, have you know, Spain has said he aims uh, the next time that they you know sit down for contract yeah. negotiations is not to just be speaking to the big three, but to the big six. In other in other words, yeah. like. The three yeah. automakers that are the big three that are already yes. union, and then yeah. adding three more yeah. uh, to to that list uh, who are currently non-union. Um, so right. it seems like they're trying yeah. to, you know, you keep the momentum going yeah. and really be able to point to the wins that they just chalked up in the big three strike and lay that into a, a kind of broader transformation of an yeah. industry that has become, uh, I believe, majority non-union at this point. Right,
2: right. Uh, may, may I slight correction? The, 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 some of the battery plants have not been built, They the, the, and, and both the, you know, Toyota wants to build its battery plant and so the So what the UAW is currently doing is, is trying to unionize The the existing assembly plants, uh, you know, uh, and auto production plants of the Toyotas and of the Nissans and of Volkswagen, et cetera, which are mainly organized mainly in the south, mainly located in the south. And yet this was was also quite uh, remarkable and important that that they immediately transitioned from this victory to saying, OK, we're going to try to organize companies, you know, uh, all over. And and what they said was over here. They said in the past, every decade, the UAW had targeted one plant, which they thought they could, or one company, whether it was Nissan at one time or Volkswagen at another, and, you know, and sent organizers in there. And they failed. And partly they failed because workers in these plants would say, why should we join you? We're getting straight wages, which are almost the same as as you're getting in in Detroit, and you haven't done so well recently anyway, so why should we join you? Pay dues, and meanwhile, the company hates you. So, but this case, of course, the union's done very well, and they can say, join us, and and you too can do well. And they also said, you know, we we think there's enough of a kind of mood in the country that we don't have to target one plant. We'll just say, we want to organize them all. And I think what the practice, what that means is that as the workers in those plants, with with a little bit of outside help, but not a lot, do generate like 30% of all the workers, you know, and sign cards, and then they'll form a, have, make a, have an official organizing committee with a, usually with, with advertising around it. Uh, then the UAW will say, okay, that plant will, 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 will pay more attention to that. And as we speak at this date, I think it's Volkswagen, Mercedes, Hyundai you know, are on the way to, they have organizing committees and and, and they're, they're sort of the target plants. But other as others come along, you know, they will be also kind of formal organizing drives at these plants. And I think their theory is that at 50%, they will kind of make a, uh, have big rallies and, and Fain will go down there, and there'll be speeches. And then it, if they get 70%, then they'll demand re- union recognition or an election. And, and I think, I think at, at this time around, I think they could win. I think they could win some of these plants. I think they could win some of these plants. The Southern political class, of course, is militantly hostile to it because a vigorous UAW local, you know, in wherever it is in Alabama or or Chattanooga, you know, it's going to be a center of, of opposition to this kind of, uh, you know, classic Southern Conservative slash populist Trumpite uh, uh, world, it's just by nature of its existence. So I, I think that the, the, the UAW has two opponents. They have the auto companies themselves, the the Toyotas and the Nissans, and uh, and they and then they also have the local political class, which is against it as well.
1: And so what you're getting at here is suggestive of why this struggle is so important, not just for. Auto workers themselves not just for raising standards within an industry where they've you know much has yeah. been taken away from these workers not just for the expanding sector of non-union auto workers for the country but the Republican Party clearly recognizes that a, a beachhead in the yeah. non-union right-wing South uh, would be deeply threatening to its political project its ability to hold on to power uh, in these kinds of states um, and so the right itself recognizes that that the UAW could be a, a, a transformative force across American politics, not just in
2: you know a, a specific industry like auto. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and, and I mean this is reminiscent of Operation Dixie. That is when the uh, in the in the post-war period, the the uh, CIO and then the AFL as well tried to you know organize the southern textiles. And, lumber and, uh, it's, and tobacco companies, et cetera. And, you know, and this was, this was a fight, you know, not just for unionism. Mm-hmm. This was a fight about the, the future of the segregationist, the Jim Crow, uh, mm-hmm. oligarchic South and, and the, and the opposition from the, the Southern politicians, everyone from the governors to the sheriff was, was vicious and racist in every possible way because they knew that. So, you know, the, the, the UAW today, uh, uh, organizing in the in these deep South uh, states, so, you know, they, they aren't going to transform it. You know, if you win one one auto plant, it's not going to be su- super immediately transformative. But it's a but as you said, it's a beachhead. It's a beachhead, an important beachhead. And uh, I think the you'll we'll see in the in the next few uh, weeks and months, a real opposition. We've already seen it from the local political establishment there, the mainly Republican Trumpite, etc.
1: And this is where your new labor forum piece ends in saying that obviously it's too soon to tell if this 2023 strike is going to go down in the labor history books as as important as the Flint sit-down strikes or other major moments in labor history. But if the union is able to parlay this kind of energy coming out of this contract campaign to this broader uh agenda to the broader program yep. of organizing non-union auto workers to being able to stand up <sighs> to the kind of uh right-wing political pressures that you're talking about and and establish the beachheads in in places that where yeah. there's very little labor or organizing happening uh then in, indeed this will be a kind of moment that we'll be able to look back on and say that this was a kind of turning point in, in
2: american labor if come absolutely those Absolutely. If they if they're able to organize, you know, several or even well, not at all, maybe not all, but it's several of them absolutely it will then that, that that'll be a, i mean they've been trying to do it for 30 30 40 years and failed i mean that that will be a major thing that'll be a major event and these these locals you know I and mean, that's they they will just by the nature of their existence by the people workers coming together most of them are in fact black and white and, and latino now they will be oppositional to the to the local political culture even though you know i'm sure there'll be some trumpites in the in the rank and file and that will have a huge impact and i think it'll also give spur on the teacher unionism we had the a red red for ed you know four or five years ago i think it'll be a shot in the arm for that and a shot in the arm for all sorts of uh, opposition groups in the south you know in, in opposition to this kind of frozen political regime which is there absolutely i think it will and one other factory <laughs> company is tesla and tesla is in the in the bay area it is not the deep south, it is, and but 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 it's being run by a fascist trending uh billionaire who has shown he's willing to spend billions on all sorts of of uh projects that that might be uh questionable, like <laughs> and so why wouldn't he spend billions and billions fighting the UAW even if if it if, if it was uh, uh, not in his best interest? But if 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 we go to if we go to Tesla, and, I, and this is another i mean, I, I kind of uh, another uh, order of magnitude even different than the southern transplants it will be a a a, a uh a, what we're going to call it a, a a battle of 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 enormous proportions and and there the po- politics of that i mean musk has put himself forward as kind of you know the the uh american potential american what do you want to call it, authoritarian right wing uh, right-wing, uh kind of figure and so the politics of that would just be incredible now as i understand it, the uaw is not putting a lot of resources into that at this moment but boy uh, if they win in the south uh, to any degree then tesla will obviously be the next target and that will be a battle royal that's the word i'm looking for battle royal
1: nelson in your classic book your biography of walter ruther you really paint this vivid portrait of the early UAW as this place of great creativity and democratic ferment and all kinds of wild and and, and raucous debates about what the union's yeah. program should be what you know what a future society should look like and what the union's role is in bringing that society about and you know it, it really paints a portrait of the labor movement in that era in the kind of CIO heyday as being the place that a young and energetic and you know uh, a person dedicated to to trying to bring about this better world. If you, if you wanted to bring that better world about, that the, that the labor movement was the place where you would go to try to uh, to to make yeah. that happen. And then obviously in the uh, decades since then, in the period of labor's decline, in the period of stagnation within uh, labor leadership, that that labor has not quite seemed like that kind of place where you would go. It is not where the, the young person who who believes that a better world is possible. You know, yep. the labor would not seem like the place where you would go in order to to uh, affect that, that that kind of vision uh, into the world. But talking about what the union has been up to with the strike, uh, with the green transition, uh, with broader things that we haven't even gotten into in this discussion, like the UAW's calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. All of this makes it seem like that... The, Labor is increasingly, and, and the UAW specifically in this moment, is increasingly uh, you know, re-emerging as that kind of locus of activity of, of the project of uh, making a, a more progressive and more equal yeah. uh, world, and, and that, that labor is the place where you want to be if you want to make those things happen.
2: Is, is that your sense? Well, I, I, I think so. I mean, the last just, just the last few years is just we look look from Starbucks to, to the universities, uh, etc. And yes, it, it seems this is quite remarkable and, and we have a certain momentum and let's run with it. And I do think that, by the way, the UAW's call for a ceasefire in Gaza, I think, was very important because you know the UAW both a has a bunch of Muslim and Arab constituents, and then then about thirty or 40, about twenty five percent or twenty percent are uh, graduate student types and uh, you know that that sort. So it, you know it, it, it was not it was not a, a it was a. It, it I think was popular within the union, at least within a certain sector. But it indicated that you know they were not going to. As in, by the way, one of the worst things that Walter Ruther did in the nineteen sixties was he hung in there with LBJ on Vietnam for too long, and, th- and that discredited uh, much of his his liberalism and his uh, his unionism. And and I don't know how how much this, the Gaza ceasefire resolution, but nevertheless, it indicates the UAW is is in the vanguard of. Of I think what the the American uh, left, certainly the young left, is uh, these days, and that's just one indi- index of that. So yes, I am hope I'm I'm more hopeful than I've been in a long time, and there's good reason to be. You can just look around and you and you see that. And the other The other side of this is that despite this sort of movement and and sentiment that's pro union and and young people active, I mean, American. Companies remain intransigent. <laughs> I mean, they they haven't moved an inch, <laughs> uh, and uh, like Starbucks is a good example of that, and 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 Amazon, etc. They haven't moved an inch really. But maybe the UAW is going to get them to move.
0: Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu podcast and to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.